0: It's a wonderful pattern that speaks, I think, to God's, to both God's common grace and his saving grace and how those are at work in the world today. What is that pattern? Well, it's this. When something like a hurricane or wildfire, even a terrorist attack takes place, or as we've seen recently, when a country is invaded and civilians become either refugees combatants or collateral damage it's wonderful to hear people sometimes people from all over the world asking how can i help how can i help have you seen this some show up to the scene of a disaster and say put me to work right we've seen that with the floods and tornadoes and such You'll see somebody pull up and they've got a hot dog thing, right? And they just open it up and they start feeding those who are working to clear debris or something like that. Somebody who has a business drives their business truck. A plumber, electrician, or whatever. Goes right down into the heart of hurricane disaster country and they start serving in that way. We've seen this, haven't we? Uh, Others open their homes. We're seeing this across Eastern Europe even now. They open their homes or they help promote the need. They get the word out there about what's happening. And many, maybe the majority, maybe you, send money to groups who are working there on the front lines in a disaster situation, a wartime situation. When the need is clear, when it is severe and urgent, People often want to participate in those efforts to meet that need. Are you one of those people? Do you find yourself wanting to assist in whatever way that you can, even when you're far away? As most of you know, the most important mission in the world is the one that addresses our most severe, our most urgent need as human beings. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's the most important mission. Wars and wildfires are tragic and they are devastating. And I wouldn't in any way want to minimize the impact that they make on lives. But as God's word reveals to us, the captivity and consequences of sin are far, far, far worse. But our need as human beings is not simply to be rid of sin. We should long for that very thing for a variety of reasons. And yet, one reason stands above all. One reason that we, one reason, the top reason that we want to be rid of sin, it's because our deepest need, yours and mine, is to be right with, to be reconciled to the God who made us. That's our deepest need. Sin is a barrier to that. To be forgiven. For sin to be driven from your life. Does not mean that you start now a new sin-free life doing whatever you want to do No, it means that the barrier has been removed That now you can know God And begin a life where you do what He wants you to do And you don't do that begrudgingly Because when you know God You know He's a good Father And you know that He's taking care of you And you know that he knows way better than you. Not just sometimes, all the time, in every way. So we want to be rid of sin. That captivity, those consequences of sin. This is why we need it decisively, need sin decisively dealt with. This morning as we've been talking and praying and singing together, we are incredibly grateful, aren't we? We are incredibly grateful that God has done just that through the person and work of Jesus. Amen? As one who was and is without sin, He, as God the Son, was able to take our sin, all of our sin upon Himself when He suffered and died on the cross. And when He died... His costly payments, that incalculable payment ransomed us then from sin's power. Now that work begins in individual lives like yours, like mine. But one day it will transform all things. It will transform all of creation. It will purge the universe of sin's corruption. Are you longing for that day? Do you want that day to come? It's coming, brothers and sisters. But if God has met this deepest of human needs, and there is right now a mission underway as we speak to bring that help to those still ensnared, those still enslaved, shouldn't we be asking more fervently than we've ever asked, how can I help? How can I help? How can I participate in what God is doing? This awesome mission. For those interested in the answer to that question, look with me at Colossians chapter 4. God's word is speaking to us this morning uh, about this very thing. As I mentioned in our previous time together, as you know, last time we were looking at Colossians as well. Paul did not. I mentioned last time that Paul did not plant the church to whom this book was written. A brother named Epaphras was used by God to proclaim Jesus to the recipients of this letter. He's actually mentioned, if you're interested, in chapter 1, verse 7. You'll see his name there. Actually, in chapter 4, verse 12, he's also mentioned again. Epaphras, our dear brother from 2,000 years ago. So faithful, so faithful. But these, if these readers didn't know Paul, right, they didn't know him, then why was he writing this letter to them? Well, they may not have known Paul, but they certainly knew of Paul. They knew of Paul. The tone of this whole letter communicates that there is already a connection between Paul's ministry as an apostle and their encouragement and instruction. Undoubtedly, these believers in the city of Colossae, these believers had heard about Paul. They had heard about his team, how God had used them to bring the gospel to, of the gospel of God to Asia Minor, right? To their region, to the regions, their neighboring regions. He was the one with his team who was bringing this message, who was planting churches all throughout Asia Minor. So undoubtedly, they, they knew who he was. They recognized this. So just listen at, to the opening greeting of this letter. I'll have it on the screen here. You can also look in your Bibles. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Listen to the opening greeting and what it reveals to us about the mission of God. Remember, that's what we're looking at this morning. The mission of God. This is what Paul writes there. He says, we always thank God... The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Quick stop. Isn't it amazing to think about the fact that Paul with his associates, with his team members, with his brothers and sisters, even when he was at captivity, they took time during the day, during the evening, and they would run down the names of the cities. Let's take some time to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Let's take some time to pray for our brothers and sisters in Laodicea, in Lystra, in Derbe, in Pergamum, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, right? Isn't that beautiful to think about that? Them just going over those names of these individuals, these churches planted it's just a beautiful picture. He's praying for the Colossians. And when he's doing that, he's, he's praising God, right? They, they've been praying for them ever since they heard that they've come to faith in Christ. They hear about the love that they have for each other and for all the, the brothers and sisters in these churches. Why are they? Uh, why is he praying for them? Why are they trusting in Christ? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, says Paul. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you in Colossae as indeed in the whole world. That's the Roman world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it, since the day you understood The grace of God in truth did you hear about the mission of God there did you hear about the mission of God how they had heard how they had heard and now just as they had heard and been changed and transformed by the grace of God through the truth of the gospel this was happening Paul wants them to understand this was happening all over the Roman Empire this is taking place in far-flung places, in close places, neighboring cities, neighboring regions. It was happening. Even it seems, It even seems that it's happening among them. Now, when it says that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, we could take that in a couple ways, couldn't we? We could say that the gospel is bearing fruit as believers are living in light of the gospel every day are walking in the down that path, a gospel-centered path every day. But we could also say that it's increasing, it's bearing fruit in Colossae as others are coming to faith in Christ. This is not the frozen chosen, <laughs> right? They're actually growing as a church, it seems like, is what Paul is saying. That would parallel well with the fact that it's bearing fruit and increasing. It's It's going, that's what it's doing in the Roman world. Paul wants to give them a sense of the bigness of what God was doing throughout the Roman world. So keep that mission in mind as we look together at the other end of the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And what we're going to discover in these verses is that the Apostle Paul is describing for these Colossian disciples of Jesus three ways, three ways that they can also participate In God's mission. Are you interested. To learn more. Let's look at those one at a time. So first of all. Paul invites his readers. Take a look. To to participate. Through prayerful support. You can participate. Through prayerful support. Paul says in chapter 4. Verses 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it. Spiritually alert. Not sluggish. With thanksgiving. At the same time, as you are praying, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word. Why? To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that I would would do this that I may make clear, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So notice how Paul's General call to prayer in verse 2 flows into a specific call to prayer for Paul's gospel-declaring ministry. His church-planning, gospel-proclaiming ministry. He says, I want you guys to pray. I want you to be a praying church. Pray spiritually with spiritual alertness. Be aware of what God is doing in you, among you, around you. Be aware of what God wants to do in you and through you. But as you're praying... Please pray for me as well, says Paul. Please pray for me. So the companion letter to Colossians is a letter we call Ephesians. They seem to be written right around the same time. Uh, The the cities were about uh, 100 miles apart or so, uh, Ephesus and, and Colossae. But if you look at the end of that letter, letter, chapter 6, it actually ends with the same exact progression we see here. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, Paul says, pray, pray, but pray specifically for me as well and my ministry. How could these disciples there in Colossae, how could they participate in this work of Remember chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. How could they participate in this work of advancing the word of the truth, the gospel, which had come to them, as indeed in the whole world it was bearing fruit and increasing? First, they could pray. They could participate by praying. Paul, when you read his letters, often connected prayer and mission. But God's question to you this morning is, do you? Do you connect prayer and mission? As is evident from his words in verses 3 and 4, Paul sincerely, genuinely, truly, really did believe that the prayers of these Christians mattered when it came to the work of the gospel. If he didn't, he would not ask for prayer. Paul was not the kind of guy to go through the motions. He wasn't the kind of guy simply to kind of run through this formalistic, you know, uh, offering of, of of end notes to his letter. Oh, by the way, say hi to this person and pray for me for this and blah 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 blah, just to get it over with. No, when he asked for prayer, he asked for it because he knew he needed it. He wanted their prayers desperately. And he cared enough about them and their growth in Christ to ask them to pray and thus involve them in the mission of God. Paul really believed these prayers mattered. Do we believe that about our prayers? Last Sunday, some of you prayed for the two church planning families we partner with in Quebec. Quebec. You prayed for the Laustons and the Murrays. It Why do I mention that? Well, it's important to see. I want you to see. I want you to note that when you were doing that last Sunday, you were doing exactly what Paul was requesting here in these verses. What you were doing mattered. Your prayers in Buckeye have made and or will make a genuine difference in Quebec you praying here is changing things there you praying here is changing things in ecuador with antony you praying here is changing things with the girls in the philippines you praying in buckeye is making a difference around the world do you believe that that's what god is that's what paul is is saying here god is saying through paul That should excite us, shouldn't it? It should excite us. It should encourage us. Especially when we feel down on ourselves. Especially when we feel disconnected, right? And we feel like, what am I doing? What impact am I making? How can I be effective? I'm hindered by this. I'm hampered by that. I'm really of no use. Look at this brother over here. Look at this sister over there. What they're doing. And God stops us and says, but you can pray. And that's not just a, oh, well, you can pray. It's you can pray. And your prayers matter and they make a difference around the world in the people's lives that you're praying through, the godly workers who are on the front lines and the recipients of their ministry. Does that encourage you? Does it excite you? We can participate in this way. But we might ask, how? How can we pray? How can we pray for those who are evangelists and church planners like Paul and his team were then? How can we pray for those people today? Undoubtedly, there are many ways we could answer that. Some general, some specific, right? Especially as you know of ministries, what's going on with them. You could be real specific. But you may have noticed that Paul actually offers two specific requests right here in verses 3 and 4. Look back at those. What's the first one? Look at that. First, he asked them to pray that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, please don't miss the fact that Paul's request here is not just for an open door. He's asking that they would pray that God would open a door. God would open a door. It's not just God give us the opportunity or, or uh, we're praying that there's an opportunity for Paul. It's God give them an opportunity. God give them that entree. Give them that open door to be able to speak. Why does Paul pray like this? Why does his request look like this? It's because the apostle understood that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a work of his sovereign grace, isn't it? So his his prayers were shaped by that. He understood that God sovereignly is moving around the world, even in our neighborhoods, our communities here. He's moving to draw men and women to himself. He's the one that opens doors and closes doors. And thus, he calls his people to be watchful and to be ready as he is doing that very thing. Are your prayers shaped by the sovereign grace of God? That he's the one who saves That he's at work stirring hearts, calling men and women, boys and girls to himself. Our prayers need to be shaped like that. That's the first request that God may open to us a door. The second request comes in verse four. Do you see it? Paul goes on to ask not for the wherewithal to walk through that door when it opens. He's fully committed to, or he's committed to doing that. Right? He's committed to doing that. He's not praying for that. But when he does pass through that door, he says, pray that I would make it clear. Now wait a minute. (laughs) Make what clear? Make the gospel clear. Pray that I would make the gospel clear. As Paul ends at the end, as Paul adds here at the end of verse four, clear is how I ought to speak. Not muddled. Not confused. Not jumbled, not 25%, not 50%. Clear is how I ought to speak. Now think about that request with me for just a minute. Think about what he's asking here. What a humble request from the Apostle Paul. If anyone could explain the gospel with clarity... It was the Apostle Paul. Far better than you or I. And yet, what does he pray? What is his request? Please pray for me. Please pray for me. Because Paul knows that he must ultimately depend not on his own learning, not on his own skills, not on his own experience, but on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God to work through him. The same Spirit that's in you. The same Spirit that's working in you and wants to work in you in this way. What a prayer to pray for all who declare, who share this good news about Jesus. Amen? How instructive of our brother 2,000 years ago to help us with this kind of humility as he asks us to pray. But that second request raises a question. It raises something we, we should take just a second to talk about. How many opportunities, here's the question, how many opportunities has God given us? How many opportunities has God given his people in which we've responded with an unclear gospel? It does seem like it's implied that that could be the case, right? God could open a door and his people could speak without any clarity. For example, some today talk about Jesus as Savior But it isn't clear why we need to be saved. Some speak of Christ's love, the loving Jesus, but they focus more on charitable works, our charitable works, than His work on the cross. Some talk about the importance of faith, but they end up describing a staircase to climb rather than a free gift to receive whatever that unclear gospel looks like, sounds like, this is a great reminder for us to hear this. It's a great reminder for us to pray for both of these requests as we pray. That God would open a door for the Word and when He does, that that Word would be declared clearly, fully. That it would be declared with power in truth. But please don't miss the larger idea here. Let me swing back to that and just remind you. Here's that larger idea. Take a look on the screen. Prayer is a powerful way to participate in the mission of God. When you hear about the mission of God, are you raising your hand saying, how can I help? Well, guess what? Here's number one. Here's number one. And you can do it anywhere. You can do it anytime. It does not require an airline ticket. You don't have to read a book or learn a new language. You simply have to bring your request to the to the God who all over the world as we speak, regardless of borders, regardless of governments, this God sends and stirs and strengthens and saves. And he graciously invites you to participate with him. What does it cost you? Zero, yeah. And yet it's so hard for us. It costs us really nothing, but we won't spend the time often to participate in the mission of God. As you hear about those who are serving, like Paul in some way, brothers and sisters, as you hear about them, participate with that brother participate with that sister participate with the holy spirit by praying praying but notice this notice how paul shifts things as we move to another way we can be involved we can number two take a look participate through wise interactions participate through wise interactions Listen to where Paul takes things in verse 5. He writes to them, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, it's really important to emphasize that Paul is still talking about outsiders. Did you notice that? He's still talking about outsiders. Did he use the word before in verses 3 and 4? No, but we know that's exactly what he was talking about. He's still talking about those. He's been talking about those who are outside the church. Those who are still outside the circle of God's saving grace. So the open door that Paul just mentioned in his request from verse 3 is an open door that leads where? To outsiders. Right? His request in verse 4 is that he might declare the gospel clearly to outsiders. We can't miss this. We need to see this. That he's, he's been talking about this the whole time. Talking about outsiders. So here in verse five, that focus continues. But there is a shift. There is a shift in this verse, right? Do you see it? He's moved from talking about his ministry, and now he's talking about their ministry. Ooh, this is, this gets intriguing, doesn't it? <laughs> he's made that shift now. According to Paul, their ministry in Colossae, the ministry of the mission of God in Colossae, does not begin with planning a service to which they can invite the community. Please see that. While that can be a very good thing at times, it's important to note that none of the apostles, including Paul, ever suggested inviting unbelievers to the church gathering as an evangelistic strategy. Not even once. Never. Similarly, Paul doesn't urge them to first offer a training course in Colossae, maybe 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, to train people about how to share their faith. Doesn't say that, does he? No, he begins with what seems like a Overly simple strategy? (laughs) Simplistic strategy? What does he say? He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. There you go. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Notice that he's not simply saying walk in wisdom before outsiders. He doesn't say walk in wisdom around outsiders. He's encouraging them here to be wise In their interactions with unbelievers. When you engage, when you interface with somebody who is not a Christian, bring a heaping, helping of wisdom every time to that interaction. Don't be casual, don't be careless. You see, he's training them, he's giving them new eyes to really see what is happening in these opportunities. He's add, he, he wants them to be wise, and we know this because he adds this qualifying phrase to drive this point home. Be wise in your interactions with unbelievers, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. The authorized version puts it, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. The NIV, the international version, and the New American Standard Bible translate that phrase, making the most of the or every opportunity. And since the verb here has to do with the marketplace, that word for redeem, I think it's ex-agorazo. And the agora, the agora, if you've ever heard of that, is the marketplace, the Greek marketplace. So ex agorazo means that you're in the marketplace looking for deals. And so a good translation may actually be make, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, snatching up every opportunity. Like it's the bargain basement, baby, right? (laughs) Like it's like you're finding the deal of a lifetime. You are snatching up every opportunity because you recognize something wonderful is present. That's what this word means. Making the most of this opportunity. So do you see the picture that Paul is painting here for them? He wants us, he wants them to be sensitized and intentional whenever we are interacting with unbelievers. Sometimes we are, aren't we? But sometimes we've become callous. Sometimes we've grown cold sometimes we take it for granted that we have the opportunity to love someone who does not know the love of jesus paul is stirring them up he's stirring them up isn't he sensitized intentional in their interactions what does that mean well first off that means being very careful to not look past a person's humanity and turn that person him or her into a prize to be won into an argument to be won. No, we don't do that. What does it mean for us to be wise? To be wise in our interactions with unbelievers? It means, I think, being wise in the way you listen, being wise about your witness to them, how you come across. Are they talking to you about something that's hurt, hurtful to them and you're doing this? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, right? Uh Uh-huh. Really? Oh, that's terrible. Oh, really? Wow, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Oh, brothers and sisters. Let's not break the heart of Jesus when we're doing stuff like that. Right? When we stand before an image bearer of God who's hurting and we're acting as if we don't care Maybe we don't, but it's a wake-up call, isn't it? It's a wake-up call for us to see this and understand this, that we're wise in our interactions. So we're wise in the way that we listen. We're wise about the questions that we ask that person. We're wise about the needs that person is revealing to us. We're wise about the verbiage we're using. We're wise in responding to their worldliness. We're wise about, uh, we're being wise about our motivations. And we're wise about what you can discern regarding their motivations. Wisdom is what God calls us to here. What Paul is describing here, brothers and sisters, friends, what Paul is describing here is a believer who understands that God's mission is the most important mission in the world and who, in light of that, is eager to be a good steward of the divine appointments God has scheduled for them with their unsafe friends and co-workers and neighbors and family members. But look at how all of this flows into a final idea here. We can also participate, number three, we can participate through gracious speech. We can participate through gracious speech. Paul writes in verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If we looked at the original language here, right, the Greek language in which this was first written, we would see the very first words, the very first phrase of this verse, verse six is your speech, let it be, right, your speech, let it be gracious, But he puts that right in front. Your speech. Why is he doing that? Well, I think he's connecting it with the fact that he just talked about his speech. A couple verses before. Well, I told you about my speech. Let's talk about your speech. He says to them. Not only should our speech be clear when it comes to the gospel, as Paul has already prayed and requested for himself. But our speech should also be gracious or literally with Grace. How often? Always. 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 Our speech should always be gracious. It should always be with grace. In a day and age where our civic discourse so often lacks grace, when our culture seems drawn perversely to the coarse and the combative, it is so important for us, the people of God, followers of Jesus Christ. It is so important for the grace that is in our hearts to be on display through the grace in our words. If not us, who? This is a clear way for us to be wise into our interactions with non-Christians. Paul, what do you mean be wise in your interactions with unbelievers? Here's one way. Let your speech always be gracious. There you go. There's one way. What does that look like in our conversations? Gracious speech? Well, it could mean many things. It could mean giving others the benefit of the doubt instead of posturing yourself immediately on the defensive. It could mean patience and understanding as you talk with somebody. It could mean avoiding caricatures and stereotypes. It could mean refraining from language that's demeaning, dehumanizing or demonizing, language that bullies or belittles. It could mean restraint when others are caustic and cruel. We might ask ourselves in those situations, is it evident to the other person that my words flow from a heart that has been humbled by and empowered by God's amazing grace? Is that coming out? As I speak to them. The very way Christ has spoken to us. And spoken into our lives. Into our hearts. Full of grace, right? We want to speak that same way. When? When people are nice and receptive? No. Always. All the time. Paul adds another point here. Do you see it? About their speech. He says your speech should also be. Seasoned with salts. Well, when I was growing up, salty language was something really different than I think what Paul is recommending here. He doesn't mean that. Don't be salty like a sailor, right? He doesn't mean that. What does he mean, though, by seasoned with salt? Well, it could mean a number of things. I think that final phrase narrows down its meaning. Do You see the final phrase of verse 6? The reason your speech should be seasoned with salt is so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think that, given that, I think this reflects the rabbinic usage of salt that Paul would have been very clear, clearly have understood. It would have been part of his vernacular, just how he spoke. And the rabbinic usage of salt was a metaphor for wisdom. So what is he saying here? He's saying your speech should be seasoned by wisdom. And when your speech is seasoned by wisdom, you are able to provide personalized answers, the appropriate answers to those who ask. What questions might they be asking? Well, given the context, Paul seems to mean questions about our faith. Questions about your faith. We need to have wisdom, don't we, as we respond to people. Grace and wisdom should characterize those answers that we give. It's as another apostle told his readers. Take a look. He said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. There's the question for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, here comes here comes the grace. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what characterizes the follower of Christ. With gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15 So what have we learned this morning, brothers and sisters? From God's word through the Apostle Paul, we've learned three ways to participate in the mission of God. Right? We've talked about participating through prayerful support. We've talked about participating through wise interactions. And participating through gracious speech. Are you asking. Do, do you recognize. First of all. Do you recognize the severe and urgent need. Of lost sinners around you. Do you recognize that. You may hear a news story about a war or a wildfire. You may hear about a flood. A tornado or a hurricane. And it may catch your attention. But is the plight of lost sinners. Capturing your heart. Grabbing your heart, getting your attention. Do you understand the need, how urgent it is? Are you saying then, how can I help? If you are, then remember, prayerful support, wise interactions, gracious words, sensitized, intentional, good stewards of the divine appointments God has scheduled for you. And when your your mind and your heart and your will are aligned with this call, with God's call, how could you not then circle back and offer up the same prayer request that Paul offered in verses three and four? Pray also for me, you might say. Pray also for me that God may open to me a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. How many of our prayer requests in life groups? How many of our prayer requests, oh, texting or on the phone with a friend? How many of our prayer requests are this? And not just the latest emergency. Those are good things to pray for. We need to pray for emergencies, crises in our lives. But if we're not asking for this prayer, then we don't understand what Paul is saying here. When Paul understood the mission of God before him and God's call in his life, it drove him to ask for prayer because he knew it wasn't in him. It was God's work in him through him. Please pray for me. I ask you, brothers and sisters, please pray for me as I minister to my friends and neighbors and people I meet in the community and family members. Please pray for me that God would provide an open door for the gospel for me. Another open door. A third, a fourth, a 527th open door. And, when he does, that I would speak clearly. You know why? Because that's how I ought to speak. Clearly. Not holding anything back. Not all jumbled up. But prepared to, to give a defense. Prepared to give a word for the hope that's in my life. If I can't, share what's in my life, how well do I know what's happening? <laughs> if I can't even just share a simple word about it, then what is happening inside of me? You see, God's word stirs us in this way. It stirs us up, gets us asking questions, but it drives us back to the comfort of the gospel, right? By God's grace, all the while that we are remember, all the while as we are asking for prayer, as we are participating with God, by God's grace, all the while we are remembering how at some point in the past God opened a door for us to hear, you to hear. He opened a door for you to hear and how God met your need. He met my need as someone spoke to us clearly. You see, that humbles us, doesn't it, when we remember that? The son was sent by the father. Someone was sent to you by the son. And now the son sends you. He wants you to participate in the mission. This is how the gospel bears fruit and increases around the world even today. And so brothers and sisters, may that same gospel, may that same good news inspire us to go in love and with gratitude as God reminds us each and every day, here's how you can help. Here's how you can help, my child. Would you pray with me?